Wow. Good to be here. <laughs> First, I want to start off just by saying hello. And uh, I know that there's some new faces or some folks that I don't know, so I'll just introduce myself, and hopefully I'll get an opportunity to meet you as well. My name is Christopher Gerald, and uh, I'm from Stillwater, Oklahoma. My wife, Laura, and our three sons, Jacob, Nathan, and Jay, we attend the North Jardo Church of Christ in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Uh, we lived here from 2009 to, I think, 2016-ish, and uh, so we've been gone about five or six years now, and uh, enjoy Stillwater, you know, talk about moving back, you know, come back out here, and I'm reminded about all the things that I miss, like, we have these things called trees, and uh, we also have a thing called water. It actually falls from the sky occasionally in Oklahoma. No, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. But we, we love Amarillo. We're so thankful to be back and uh, to spend time with you. And it's our prayer that our time spent this week will be a blessing to the congregation and that the Word of God will uplift and encourage, to correct, admonish, and just be a blessing. So we're really happy to be here. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. And and thanks to Seth and Avery for uh, hosting us. It's been good so far. We're having a good time, and we appreciate their hospitality. So let's begin. Oh, uh, another thing. So it helps to know where people come from. And again, I know a lot of you know me really well. Some of you don't know me at all. I grew up in the middle of Oklahoma on a farm. Uh, I work in healthcare information technology. I used to work for BSA Hospital there. I work for Stillwater Medical um, Hospital in, uh, in Stillwater. And so I do problem-solving work. You know, I lead a team of software analysts, so that's my day job. Um, and so I approach things from that world sometimes. Sometimes I approach things from a farm boy <laughs> mentality, so I switch back and forth. But hopefully the teaching will be clear, and it's my desire that God's Word will be taught truly, accurately, in a way that's good. So let's jump in tonight. I have a particular topic in mind, and I, I appreciate Trevor he said, what are you going to talk about? And I said, I'm going to talk about idolatry. And uh, he said, well, do you have any songs that go well with idolatry? And I made one up right quick, and Carson said, no, we've sung that one already. So we're not going to do that song. But the song that Trevor led did talk about our place before God and who we should love the very most. And so often we think about idolatry as a thing that was an Old Testament problem and a first century Christian problem as the church was born out of a culture that was steeped and dominated uh, by the state and by the culture of idolatry. And so sometimes it's easy for us as, as 20, 2023 Christians to think about idolatry being a thing in far distant past that we don't really have to think about or be on guard against. But what I do want to do is challenge that assumption tonight and encourage you to think a little bit about how that we, even as members of the body of Christ, can be guilty of idolatry and how that we can avoid that problem and talk about the blessings that we can get when we do put our focus on God the Father. So let's talk about having no other gods before God. So this is an image of Mount Sinai, at least from my imagination, of what that mountain would look like. And if you were, if you were Israel and had freshly come out of Egyptian slavery, and you had seen experiences with, with God, or what the Egyptians called God, and they would have been objects of stone, statues overlaid with gold and silver and bronze, and they would have looked like animals and people. 
And you would have had a, you could say, well, what does the god Ra look like? And you could go to the temple of Ra and you could see a likeness of his. And the likeness that they would worship, you know, every Egyptian would go to you and say, no, this isn't actually God. But what this statue is, is it's a representation of the transcendence beyond that that would be instructive about who that God is. Is it a vengeful God? Is it a forgiving God? Is it a harsh God? Is it a nurturing God? And people made images, idols of these gods that they used in their worship to focus on the God that they believed in behind it. But the goal of the idol itself was to teach people who didn't know that God what that God was like, about its character, its deeds. So Israel comes to Mount Sinai. And they get a completely different concept of who God is and what a God is. See, they come to the foot of the mountain. And God tells Moses, you got to keep Israel back from the mountain. I was so impressed. Before church, I was showing this drawing to Boyd. And Boyd said, what is that? I said, it's Mount Sinai. He goes, oh. I said, what can you tell me about Mount Sinai? He said, he said the people weren't supposed to go up right away. I'm like, that's exactly right. The people weren't supposed to go up right away. Now, God, some of the people come up, and God talked to those people. He spoke to them out of the fire on top of that mountain. And that's going to be important later in our study. But later, they said, we can't talk with God like this anymore. We're going to die, Moses. You go up, you talk to God, and you come back and you tell us whatever he said, and we're going to do it. So Moses goes. And there's some things that God spoke to Israel from the mountain, from the fire. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, we have a record of this. He said that God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God saying, you may have heard that there were gods, but I'm the Lord. The capital L-O-R-D in your Bible, whenever you see that, that's a reminder that Lord is translated from the Hebrew Yahweh, which is the proper personal name of God. Whenever you see Lord in all caps, that means it's Yahweh, the God. It means the one who will be, the self-existent God, the God that will always be there no matter how far you go into the future, He will exist. That's how God revealed Himself to Israel. He said, I'm God and I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they needed to leave their ideas about who a God would be and what a God would be back in Egypt. He says in verses 3 to 4, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or in the, in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, why did he say that? Because all the gods of Egypt, they look like snakes, they look like cats, they look like frogs, they look like people, right? God said, no, you're not going to make any of that for me. And now he says, you don't have any other gods before me. Now, there's a couple of ways that you can interpret this, I think, and still be correct. You might say that God doesn't want any other God worshipped before or in front of, like above Him. And that's true, that we shouldn't worship anything or have affection for anything above what we have for God. But if we read other passages, I think a greater sense is, is that God doesn't want anything in addition to Him or beside Him. In other ways, before my face. It's as if God said, you will have no other gods before my face. Meaning that you don't worship anything alongside me. And you don't make a carved image or any kind of image 
that to set before me, to stand for me, to represent me. God said, don't make an image for me. Now, this is weird in this world. In the ancient world, every culture made idols for the purpose of teaching people what their God was like and who he was, or their goddess, as it were. But God said, you don't do any of that for me. So that's the command. And then he says in verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God explaining who he is. He's jealous. He's like a jealous husband. And I say, well, that's kind of a, a petty attribute. When we talk about a person being jealous, we typically think about that as being a negative connotation. But guys, if a new, if a new guy moves into the neighborhood and he starts waving at your wife, anytime she's walking by, he's making a point. He comes over to talk to her. He starts paying a lot of attention to her. Starts going a little bit beyond what's normal neighborly conversation. How are you going to feel? And you might say, I'm feeling a little bit jealous about that. And someone said, that's kind of petty. You really don't need to think about that. You said, but he is making eyes at my wife. And you'd be right to be jealous. Because she's yours. Ladies, same. Flip it. If the neighbor lady moves in and is paying too much attention to your husband, you might feel jealous, and that's right. Why? Because you've got a right to him, and your husband has a right to you. And anything that infringes upon that is a rightful cause for jealousy. God says, you belong to me. You don't bow down to them because you're mine. I brought you out of Egypt. You belong to me. And no one else and nothing else deserves your affection or your worship like I do. Now, Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 through 23 The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall make no gods of silver to be with me. Again, that idea. Nor shall you make yourself gods of gold. God says, Look, I talked to you personally. You heard my voice. Why then make an idol that can't talk, can't see, can't smell, can't taste? God says, it's silly to make anything besides me because you've seen the real thing. You've heard me speak. You don't need anything else. Now, fast forward to Mark chapter 12, verse 29, when Jesus is questioned about what the greatest command in the law of Moses is. This is the same law that Moses received when he went to talk to God. And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. When God teaches us who He is, and He sets His expectations about what He deserves, He sets forth this commandment, that our love for God should have no equal, that God deserves 100% of our affection. It deserves our heart, soul, our mind, and our strength. And there's no part of us that's left over that should be given to anything else. You know, sometimes I've I've maybe taught it or heard it taught that if you put anything else in that blank, then you're guilty of idolatry. You shall have, if you shall love something else with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, then you're guilty of idolatry. 
And clearly, if we put anything in our life in the place that's only deserving by God, and we put it in that place and worship it, clearly we're guilty of idolatry. But I want to take it one more step further. If you shall love something else at all, you're guilty of idolatry. Now I might say, hey, I love my family. I love my dog. Right? You might think, say, well, I love coffee, Seth. Right? And we think, we, we say, we use that word, we throw it around a lot. I love this thing. I love that thing. But the thing is, is that when we love God with everything that's within us, if we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then He and His commandments tells us other things that are worthy of our love. Not only does He tell us what's virtuous to love, He explains to us the correct way in which to love them. And then it becomes an extension of our love for God. But if we take something that God hasn't said, and we love that, or if we love it in a way that God says not to, then we're also guilty of idolatry. Let's talk about that for a moment. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, the warning to the body of Christ is, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, that's not one that my parents taught me a lot growing up. They might say, hey, you know, watch out for those town girls. They're trouble. I grew up on the farm, you know. Or, hey, you know, don't go with your friends and drink what they drink and smoke what they smoke and be stupid like they're stupid. They said that kind of stuff to me all the time. But they didn't say, now remember, Christopher, as you go out, keep yourself from idols. Never got that one. But the commandment is real. And it begs the question, what's an idol? Right? And so I made this rough pictogram. We know we can go into a museum and see something that looks kind of like that, a little block of stone that's been carved with a face or you know to represent something let's talk about what an idol is it comes from a greek word idolon which you can read just as poorly as i can in greek so that's what it means it's an idol an image or a likeness whatever represents the form of an object either real or imaginary used of the shades of the departed apparitions specters or phantoms of the mind or the image of a false god. So an idol, let's broaden that definition. One, it is an image or a picture or a carving that depicts a false god that people would use as a focus to worship that deity that instructs about what that god or goddess is like. It can also represent a form or an idea, right? Satanists, they build statues of Satan. It's kind of funny when you talk about like who actually believes in Satan. Like Satanists don't believe in Satan. You know who really does believe in Satan? And like, yeah, Christians. <laughs> Satanists don't believe in Satan. They believe in the idea of Satan. And the idea of Satan is a total rebellion, a life without God, free from all of his commandments. That's what Satanists really, the true Satanists, don't believe in him. But what they do believe, and they elevate to a series of an idol or a to the level of an idol is the idea of a life without the inconvenience of God. So they're idols of Satan and they represent an idea. Now also, I want to, I want to press in on this idea of phantoms of the mind. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Because there's lots of idols in the world and not all of them are made out of stone. So when we think about an idol, we think about this little guy sitting on a pedestal and you know, that's something that we can relate to because we see it in movies. It may be in a picture in the back of your Bible. 
uh, or it may be, you know, as an idea or an example of idolatry. But what's more likely is that someone has an idol that doesn't exist in the form of a stone or a piece of metal. It exists in their mind and in their heart. I would, I would, I've never, never gone into someone's house and seen a place in their living room where they've got a little stone guy sitting on a pillar. And I said, what's this? Oh, this is God. We worship this thing. But, you know, I, I do go to people's houses sometimes, and I look around, and I see other things that represent things that they do worship. And maybe I can see evidence that there are things in their life that they worship other than God, and those things are in their mind. A good example of this is the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They would tell you that they hated idols and that they would never be involved in idolatry. But the problem is, is that they had this inflated idea of themselves. And they had this elevated idea of who they thought God was. And they practiced idolatry, but it's not because they had stones and metal that they worshipped, but they worshipped the wrong idea. And this is what we have to be on guard against. We also have to be on guard with our passions and our affections. Colossians 3 and 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, this is very overt. I think you can make an idol out of any of these things, but very specifically here, it says that covetousness is idolatry. What is covetousness? Well, covetousness, if I could back up, is greed. It's a desire for wealth. Whether you have it or not is immaterial. But your desire for wealth and gain can be a service to the unjust and unreal God of money. Because money represents the ideal of what you can get with it. It represents power, pleasure, ease, all these things. And so we need to be on guard against this idea of covetousness as it sets root in our heart. And that's hard in a land of plenty and a land of capitalism, isn't it? Not to make money in the pursuit thereof our chief object of worship. So you may have in your heart this idea of I've got to get more, or I've got to make the bills. That could be an idol for you. Here's another thing. Romans chapter 2, verse 21. Here is a, a very interesting passage. This is out of the, all my passages tonight are out of the ESV. I don't use 100%. I know that some of you guys use it quite a bit, so I hope that doesn't surprise anybody. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 21 says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? So this is a clue that this is going to be a passage about hypocrisy. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, this is a really odd question to me. What does abhorring idols, because we see some opposites here. We're like, okay, uh, we preach against stealing, do you steal? Okay, uh, do you commit adultery even though you preach against it? And then, so there's this dichotomy between abhorring idols in robbing temples. I believe the King James maybe says, do you commit sacrilege? 
And that literally means to rob or desecrate a place of worship. So whether or not it's actually going into a a place of worship to desecrate it by taking something out or by doing something else to profane that holy space, that's the idea. But there's this relationship between this idea of saying that you hate idols, but on the one hand, going and robbing a temple. So that seems to be kind of a strange idea, and I'm trying to make sense of this. So let's go here to Matthew 21, verse 12. Matthew 21 to 12. So Jesus goes to the temple, okay? This is a place that's supposed to be holy. And it says he, drove, he, he entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the, of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to him, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, in some circles, it's popular to call a banker a robber because a lot of people don't like people who charge interest, right? Squeeze people. And someone selling pigeons? I mean, I don't, I don't know any pigeon sellers personally, but I mean, it seems like there's not like an analogy like, oh, I'm selling a pigeon and it makes me a robber. So what's going on here? Well, if I can postulate, Jesus goes into this space, the temple, and Jesus is incensed because this is a place where he says this is supposed to be called a house of prayer. Prayer to who? Prayer to God, Yahweh. And what are you guys doing in here? You've got your table set up. You're charging people an unfair exchange rate. You're charging them out the wazoo for pigeons. You're getting these people, and instead of trying to serve God's people by facilitating worship in a way that's loving and glorifying to God, they have made an enterprise, a lucrative and unfair enterprise off people who are just trying to worship God. And so they're robbing people in a sense, and they're also robbing God of His glory. Remember, this was a space that was dedicated to Him, and they have co-opted this place and using it for their own gain when it was intended for His glory. So why do they go to the temple, these money changers, these pigeon sellers? Are they going to worship God? They're going to get rich. They go to the temple to worship the God of covetousness, of greed. So that's how they are robbers of temples. Now, I have an image that I want to show you. This is probably a familiar image to you. If you go to Daniel chapter 2, we're not going to go read that. You can read it tonight. Good bedtime reading. It's about dreams. If you're lucky, you'll have some cool ones about what Daniel wrote about that Nebuchadnezzar the king saw. But if you go back and read Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So Israel has been taken captive. They're in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the king. He has a dream. He calls Daniel. Daniel can interpret the dream when no one else could, and he saves the lives of the wise men. And he says, O king, you saw... In visions of the night, a great and terrible image. And this image had a head of gold. It had arms and chest of silver. It had belly and thighs of brass. And it had legs and feet of iron. And the bottom of the feet were iron mixed with clay. And he stands up this image. 
And he says, And you saw until a stone was cut out without hands and struck this image in the feet, and it turned to dust and blew away. And that stone that hit it became a mountain that filled the whole earth. And then he said, In the days of these kings that the God of heaven would have... I just did something there. Wow. Whoa. Oh, hang on. Not enough buttons or too many buttons. Anyway, so he tells him the interpretation of the dream. And he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And then he said, after you is going to come a kingdom inferior to you, and then another one after them, and another one after them, that will bear rule over the whole earth. And so this is another way of Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar, like, look, things are good right now, but your days are numbered. Now, there's almost nothing a leader wants to hear less than your days are numbered and that your dynasty and your nation is going to come to an end. If someone came to us and said, hey, did you know that the United States is going to fall to a nation that's inferior to that? We would probably try to do anything that we could. At least our leaders would probably do anything they could to save us from that catastrophe, right? They don't want the American nation to end. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want Babylon to end because he had a pretty good gig going. Now what happens in the next chapters after that is he gets an idea. He says, I know what I can do. Now the Bible doesn't say this explicitly. This is Christopher's opinion. But Nebuchadnezzar makes a big image of gold. Why do you suppose he did that? I've often wondered. On the heels of this amazing prophecy that Daniel was able to interpret for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, realizing that the God of heaven has numbered his days and has told and recognizes that Daniel is a man of God and can tell mysteries that no one else can know, instead of having faith in what God said, he's like, I'm going to try to appeal to God. I'm going to bargain with God. I'm going to make an image that instead of just having a head of gold, the whole thing is gold. The idea is that Babylon's not going to end. And if we could just get enough people to agree to this idea that Babylon is going to keep going on and this thing is going to keep going on forever, then we'll be in good shape. And we can get people to worship this image and God will change his mind. That's just Christopher's opinion that this is what was in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. But it doesn't work. And it doesn't matter, folks. Once we know what God has to say about something, when he says it's going to happen or it's not going to happen... We can try to bargain with God. We can get people on our side and try to get them to bow down to our idea of how we think things can go. But it doesn't really matter because God is God and we aren't. See, he set up an idol. And mostly it was an idol to honor himself. And that is the most dangerous and insidious kind of of worship there is. Daniel 3, 1, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. This is a cubit, 60 of those. That's a big golden image. He wanted to get his point across. Its breadth was six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And he wanted everybody to fall down and worship. And people did, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He wanted to get people on his side. The warning for us is this, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why are there going to be times of difficulty, Paul? He says, well, for people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money. 
proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's the selfie generation, folks. I think one of the worst things that ever happened for people to take these things and put a camera on this side of it. Lovers of self. You hear that all the time. You need to love yourself. Now, we need to, we need to exercise healthy self-care. Let me say, when God tells us to love each other, remember what He said to Jesus? He said, a new commandment I give. Because the commandment, you remember the first commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus never repeated that for us. He didn't say that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Did you know that? Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love each other like I have loved you. Do you realize that? The command for Christians is not to love our neighbor like we love ourselves, because that's a pretty poor litmus test, I think, because we don't get it right a lot of the time. Jesus said, don't love your neighbor like you love yourself, Love your neighbor like I love them and like I love you. And so if we're to love everyone as God loves us, that means that we would love ourselves how God loves us. But not like this. This is something different. This is a person who is fixated and obsessed with the self. They love money full of pride and they're arrogant. They're abusive to others in their pride and arrogance toward others. That's a symptom. You show me someone who's abusive to others, you'll show me a proud person. Because it's the idea of pride that elevates the self above others and justifies the abuse. They're disobedient to their parents. Why should they listen to mom and dad? They're old, out of touch, and they don't know what's going on. I'm going to do what I want. Who am I to listen to my parents? They're disobedient. Ungrateful. In other words, entitled. Oh, there's a buzzword. Ungrateful for the gifts they've been given. They think they needed it. They expect it. Not thankful for that. Unholy. Meaning they don't imitate the character of God. They're heartless. The King James renders that without natural affection. That's a store guy. Store guy is the affectionate parental love in the Greek language. They're heartless. No natural affection unappeasable. I think about cancel culture. You make one step, you offend the woke monster, it will eat you. And there is no repentance. From that, it's unappeasable. People find it to be a virtue to not forgive, a virtue to cancel, a virtue to cast out people as pariah and never give them a second chance. It's the opposite of grace. Slanderous. They're quick to count it a virtue to speak out against someone personally and attack them. They don't have self-control. Why should I? I'll do what I want to do because I love myself and I love pleasure. They're brutal toward others. They don't love what's good. They're treacherous or traitorous, reckless. And that idea of just being swollen with the seat, just puffed up like a toad, Right? <laughs> Because they love pleasure more than they love God. That is the most dangerous pitfall for a Christian. 
when we love our pleasure, our self, and our gain more than we love our God. And so in our mind, we create an idol. And it's go me, generation me, all about my accomplishments and my gym workout and my talents and and my dance moves and my car and all the things that I've done. Attention on me. Because I'm worthy of your worship, right? That's what we imply whenever we make it about ourselves. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 says, For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, stop. Don't look up here. Look right here. We're getting ready to hear about a person or a kind of a person who the Bible says is an enemy of the cross. Now, a lot of us, when we start thinking about who's an enemy of the cross, we want to think, well, that's like a, like a radical Islamic jihadist, right? Or a Satanist or a global statist or someone who's just a terrible person, a murderer, right? A thief. These are the people who we would say are enemies of the cross of Christ, atheists. What does the Bible say someone who's an enemy of the cross is? Now, certainly all those people that I just mentioned are and can be. But someone who is an enemy to the cross of Christ is someone is, their end is destruction and their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. You ever think about that for a moment? Their God is their belly. That is such a great literary device. Whatever the belly wants, whatever our appetites want, whatever the flesh craves, we'll obey it like a God. There are people who give their flesh and their appetites and their passions allegiance and obedience and sacrifice that none of us would give to God. Can you imagine what it's like for your God to be your belly? Maybe you've been that way. I know I have. The difference between the God of the Scripture and the God here is that the God of the Scripture can be satisfied. But this one can't. No sacrifice, no offering, no obedience will will satisfy the God of the belly. It will set you in shame and it will force you as you try to serve it to focus all your thoughts and your attentions on earthly things. What do you think about during the week, folks? What's on your mind? It's easy to get short-sighted, get our blinders on to focus. I'm trying to survive. I'm trying to make sure the kids don't kill each other. When you, get, when you get three of them, that's more of a problem than when there's just one. I'm trying to pay the bills. I'm trying to do a good job. I'm trying to keep them the yard mode. i got to feed the cat. i got to water the fish. i gotta, I got to do all the things, right? What are we thinking about? And it's easy for us to get overwhelmed and distracted, and we focus our mind on earthly stuff. And before we know it, we've gone a few days, and we think, Man, I really, man, there's something I really need to pray about. But then we feel guilty because, you know, I haven't really haven't prayed to God recently. And now that I need something, I shouldn't go to Him now because I've neglected Him all week. And now that I'm in trouble, I'm going to go to God like we're best buds now when I haven't paid Him a lick of attention 
thought about Him, meditated on His Word, because I've had my mind set on earthly things, and we start to question, who is my God? What's your God? Money? Health? There are a lot of people who worship health. Our philosophies, our pleasure, our food and drink, our sexuality, which we'll talk about tomorrow. Entertainment, our traditions. Ooh, there's a good one. Our career, our family. You know, a lot of these things have a place in our life. But it should be under the umbrella of how we exercise these things in a way that allows us to love God. But when we set them outside the umbrella or out of the scope of what God's law says for us, we set them up and we make them a God unto themselves. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one that you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads, leads to righteousness. Who do you obey? Who do you serve? I heard it said one time that attention is worship. I don't think they're wrong. What has your attention? Whatever has your attention has your worship, has your obedience, has your affection. Jesus said in Luke 16, verses 13 through 14, No servant can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or... He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money or mammon, as it says in some translations or accounts of this. And then the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Why did they ridicule him? Because he was preaching against their God. <laughs> they idolized money. And they scoffed at him. Of course not. Jesus said, you've got to make a choice. And they made their choice. They rejected Jesus in favor of the God of money. Where do you stand tonight? What will your choice be? Luke chapter 16 and verse 15, And then he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You may say, but you know, I have this under control. This is in its proper place. I know I really like this thing, but you know, I haven't had to make that many compromises or sacrifices for this. You can fool yourself into thinking the thing that you love doesn't interfere with your relationship to God, but you can't fool Him. He knows. He knows what you love. In your heart of hearts, He knows. Do you? So there's a challenge we have. I'm thinking of King Josiah, as he learns the word of God, and he goes through the land of Israel just smashing bales, smashing idols, tearing them up, burning them, grinding them to powder, purging the land of idolatry. And it's easy to go out with a sledgehammer and beat a piece of stone. But you know, the trouble is that whenever we set up a false god in our heart, you can't go and hit that with a sledgehammer. It'd be nice if you could. But the challenge that makes our gods and our hearts so stubborn is that we get this seed of an affection and it hardens up in our heart. 
And then it gets covered over with a layer of habit and becomes very stubborn. And then it becomes covered over with more affection and more habit and more affection and more habit. And pretty soon we've got something that's pretty hard to dislodge, but the Bible can help us with that. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3-4, through For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, not a sledgehammer, okay? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy a stronghold. Do you have a stronghold of Satan in your heart? Do you have another God set up in your heart that is screaming for, demanding your worship, your attention, your affection, and your love? How do we get rid of that? We are to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Whenever that false God calls for our attention, we meet it with the Word of God that puts it in its place, whether that's outside of our heart or underneath the dominion of the Lord Christ. That is the place for those things. We can do that, and it may seem stubborn, but the Word of God addresses whatever you're struggling with. I can guarantee you that. And I want to go back to Deuteronomy right quick. This is a thought I had just yesterday. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5-6, through six, God is talking. So, Exodus, God gives His law as they're leaving Egypt. And then they fail to enter the Promised Land because of their unbelief. Forty years in the wilderness, and then they come back. Deuteronomy means the second law, or the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy is essentially a big, long speech by Moses, where he goes to the children of Israel, and he gives in the law again to that generation that was left after all those unfaithful died off. He gives them the law again. And he reminds them of their failures and their successes, reminds them of the covenantal promises of God. And here he says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of. Keep them and do it, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this is a great nation and is a wise and understanding people. Why would the nation of Israel be a marvel of the nations? Why would they tremble? At Israel. Because they had a law that was given to them by their God that He spoke out loud to them and that made them wise and understanding people. And then He says in verse 7 and 8, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call on Him, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. The nations would marvel at Israel because they had a God who was so near to them that talked to them directly from the mountain and gave them a law that gave them wisdom and understanding and made them a marvel. Why didn't God allow any objects of worship before Him? Remember, an object of worship, an idol, was instructive in that it would teach people what the God behind the idol was like. It revealed its nature. 
Remember in the creation of humanity, God said, let us make man in our image. Man was made in the image of God. Why does God need an idol when we've got a whole building full of people who are created in the likeness of God? Now, I might say, are you telling me that every person is made in the likeness of God? Well, some more than others. What does that mean? There are some people who hate God. And the fact that they're made in His image is disgusting and repulsive to them, and they rebel against Him. But there are other people who embrace that idea that God made me like Himself to have a relationship with Him, and He's given me a law that explains who He is and explains what he's like, and what he loves, and what he hates. And I'm going to take this law into my own heart, and I'm going to impress it into my life, so that I'm going to love what God loves, and I'm going to hate what God hates. And I'm going to take the principles of God, what he's like, and I'm going to press that into my life, and I'm going to be like that. And the more and the greater degree that which we do that, the more and more we become an image bearer of the infinite God. Why didn't God say, make an idol so people will know about me? Israel was His image. We, tonight, as followers of His Son, Jesus Christ, His sons and daughters, are image bearers of the Most High God. Let me tell you this. If we've got a heart that's devoted to worship to anything else, We can't be teaching and instructive and reveal the nature of God to the world around us. If there's something else in your heart. If someone were to look at your life, let's imagine, let's put this to the test. God told someone, look, it's your job to learn about me. And you've got to look at Trevor's life. And I just want you to look at Trevor to get an idea about who I am. And so if that person could look at Trevor's life, say, okay, well, I need to examine Trevor, see what's important to him. He might say, yep, absolutely. God is an OSU Cowboys fan. I'm just kidding. If someone had to gain an idea about what was important to God and who God was by looking at your life, what would they think is important to God? We are called, brothers and sisters, to be image bearers for Him. And if there's anything in your heart tonight that opposes Him, it's time to smash some idols. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Arm yourselves means to literally take up weaponry. It was the sword and the, or the shield and the spear. Take up this as arms, this way of thinking. Right, the, the battle is in our mind against phantoms of the mind, idols in our heart. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. My desire for myself and my desire for you is that we would take our hearts and purge it of anything that God hates and welcome into it everything that God loves so that we would live our life as a monument not to our own vanity, but to the greatness and grace of God Almighty. The best best way we can do that is by being a servant of His Son, Jesus.
Have you obeyed the gospel? Are you a servant of Jesus? Are you a servant of yourself tonight? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you believe in what He did in His redemptive work on the cross on your behalf to purchase your salvation through His blood, if you're willing to confess that fact, that faith, if you're willing to repent and say, I'm going to smash the idols in my heart and I'm going to turn the running of my life over to the Son of God, and if you're willing to be baptized to meet Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection, and we can help you be a servant of God tonight. Tonight, if you have discovered that the Word of God has convicted you, that you have an idol in your heart that you can't destroy on your own, and you'd like the prayers of the church to help you with that, we stand ready to pray tonight. If the church can serve you, I ask you, come have a seat on the front while we sing the invitation song.